chapter 40. Um, When the minister or the preacher chooses a text to read and to exposit, uh, he has decisions to make, and uh, I made a decision to read the entire chapter. So it is a rather long text, and uh, since it is long, read along with me. This is God's word, and uh, consider a couple of things. First, uh, observe verses 1 through 12, the various voices that administer comfort, this chapter has to do with God's comfort. First 12 verses, look to see the various voices, observe the voices that administer God's comfort. Then in verses uh, 13 through 31, uh, observe the various questions that are raised. Who's raising these questions? Look for the questions, observe the questions. And then last, and it's kind of hidden a little bit, uh, look for the complaint that is raised. The complaint that is raised. Isaiah 40, this is God's word. People of God, give your careful attention to its public reading. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low, and let the rough ground become plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it, Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? 
And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from the bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, the craftsman casts it, the goldsmith plates it with gold, and the silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot, and he seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, and he makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely have their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number and calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Since the reading of God's word, you see why I wanted to read the entire chapter. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would open your word to us, grant your spirit. Your word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. We need such light. Grant to us your spirit for discernment, knowledge, and even by the power of your word, transform us we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God's comfort is for a broken people. 
His comfort is for a storm-tossed people. To a people deep in grief, pain, suffering, trouble. A people despaired, depressed, dismantled, deconstructed, discouraged. A people whose fear blaze and then face the cold, dank grave of death. A nerve has been strained and flamed by the emotions of sorrow and pain and submerged into an inky blackness of perpetual midnight Profound affliction, profound grief, profound sorrow has touched a people like the people of Judah to whom Isaiah is ministering and a people like you and me. What does God say? What does God say in the midst of such darkness, such sorrow, such grief? What does he say? Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Throughout the chapter, you see it's God's mission mandate to comfort you, his people. The means he uses, the various agents, are are words and voices and his own presence. His message, we see, it's it's a quote, really, in the beginning of the chapter, Her warfare has ended. Her iniquity has been removed. She has received from the Lord's hand double like an inheritance to the eldest son. Double in spite of all of her sin. You have received double blessing. A mandate, a means, a message. And now this morning, his majesty. What is the ground? What is the basis? How can we be assured with all of the trouble, with all of the grief, with all the pain, with all of the suffering, how is it, what is the ground, what is the basis of such comfort? And in the text it's clear from verses, what, 13, 12, to the end of the chapter, his majesty, God's majesty, there is his mandate, there is his means, his instrumentality, there's his message. And here, here we find his, his majesty, the ground, the assurance, the basis upon which we can be assured that his comfort will come to us in the midst of struggle and pain and hurt. It will come. God says, comfort, oh, comfort my people. And on the basis of his majesty, his sovereign power, the dignity of his promises and word. He will come and comfort you in all of your sorrow. So let's consider that this morning. He promises to comfort. Now, I have to say that in the midst of our sorrow and pain, there are times where we might doubt. We might be skeptical We may not feel that comfort, and we would ask, well, where is God in the midst of 
all of the trouble that I'm facing, all of the grief, all of the pain, all of the loss. Where is God in this? There just seems to be a vacuum. It seems to be a dark vacuum. Where is God? I'm in the pit. It's dark. Where is his comfort in all of this with all of the tears and the pain and the sorrow and the wrestling, the struggling, the striving? Where is the comfort of my God? Have you ever felt that? Have you ever questioned? Been a little skeptical, doubtful. Where is he? Things seem too dark. Where is he? So we might, we might doubt in the cold, dark midnight of the soul, looking for his warmth, looking for his light, struggle, challenged, all of us challenged to one degree or another, at one time or another. How are we assured? How are we assured in those doubts with all of the struggle, with all of the pain? Again, his majesty, he addresses us according to his majesty. And that's what you see in this text. God addresses our hurt, our pain, sorrow, along with our doubts, our skepticism, our fear, our anxieties. He has not forsaken you in all of your afflictions. He has not forsaken you in all that you face. And so let's look at the text, and there's two points this morning. First, the people's complaint. You find that in verse 27. So we go right to the heart. Verse 27, and then uh, the Lord's response. The people's complaint and the Lord's response. So the people's complaint. You see it, and I asked you to look for it. Maybe you've heard it or read it along the way. And the Lord posits it as a question. The people are making an assertion. They're saying something. They believe something about God, and now God raises the question, well, why? You see it? Verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel? It's it's interesting. He refers to Jacob, Israel. Where, Where is Jacob and Israel seen together? Where does Jacob become Israel in Genesis? Why is his name changed? It's an interesting question. We won't, we won't pursue that as much in the text that we can. But just to, just to point out that when he uses Jacob, Israel, I know it's parallelism, but he's doing that on purpose. It's to remind you of Genesis and Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord, with God himself. So the Lord is saying to Jacob, Israel, Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, and here's the assertion. This is what Israel is believing in all of her affliction and trial with Assyria on the doorstep and with Babylon on the horizon, with all of the pain and the terror that these nations can bring upon Israel and all of the pain and terror that we might experience in our lives. Why do you assert this? My way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. This is what Israel is asserting. My way is hidden from God, from the Lord, and the vindication, the justice, the fairness, the, the rightness, 
has somehow passed by my God. He hasn't taken notice of me. He hasn't seen the trouble that I'm in. It's as though I'm hidden from him, hidden from him, and it's as though he doesn't care. There's kind of a complacency on the part of God. That's the assertion, a complacency. He's just passed by. He's not noticing. He's not caring. There's no concern. This is, this is the complaint. The doubt, skepticism, fear, possibly settled conviction. Why are you saying this, Jacob, Israel? Why are you asserting? Why do you believe? The Lord is hidden, or you are hidden from the Lord, and he has passed by. What's interesting in this text is, is the, Lord, the Lord overhears their conversation, their thoughts, their doubts, their skepticism. He's overhearing this. He, he knows what their struggle is, and if that's not in part a comfort, it is. He, he hasn't forsaken you. He hasn't overlooked. Your way is not hidden. He hasn't passed by. He's even hearing the struggles that you're having and the doubts and the skepticism and the, and the lack of faith that you're struggling with in your affliction. He's hearing that. And that at least should be a comfort. Your way is not hidden. He hasn't passed by. He's so very close. He can hear what you're saying. He knows what you're thinking. This has been a theme throughout the scripture. The feeling that somehow God has forsaken me or has forgotten me or just can't help me in my trouble. It's not a novel struggle. It's a theme that you find throughout the scripture. In Ezekiel 37, the Lord takes Ezekiel and places him into the valley of dry bones, a rather macabre vision to be sure. And, uh, and the Lord gives the interpretation of this vision. Why, why put Ezekiel in a valley, a macabre valley of dry bones, of skeletal remains, a carpet, a macabre carpet of skeletal remains? Why does the Lord put Ezekiel in that, in that place through that vision that he's having? Why such a macabre vision? And the Lord has overheard his people, in Babylon to be sure, has overheard his people. The people are complaining. They're struggling with doubt and skepticism. They're saying, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Ezekiel 37. So God gives a vision of the valley of dry bones because it is a projection It's a picture of how the people are feeling and what they are saying. Our bones are dried up and our hope completely cut off. This is is how they feel and this is what they're talking about. This is what they're believing. This is what they're thinking. Our hope is cut off. Is it? Isaiah 42, the sons of Korah. I will say to God, my rock, wonderful paradox, I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Have you ever felt that, that there are times where you feel that God has somehow forgotten you? 
Psalm 22, David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Have you ever felt that? Forsaken by God? And you call out to him, you pray day and night, and there doesn't seem to be an answer. He's just like crickets in the background, no answer. Where is God? Perhaps dark vacuum. No one's at home. Have you ever felt that? Matthew 11. John the Baptist in prison. (laughs) And it seems like things are not going the way he envisioned, that the Messiah is to come and with his sword and, and his might and make all things right. Where, where is he? So John the Baptist languishes in prison and he's hearing these various reports, you know, the gossip and the, and the float and, and he's all concerned and so he sends his disciples to Jesus, are you the one who, who we should be expecting or shall we look for someone else? Shall we look for someone else? He is indeed struggling. He's hearing the, the, the executioner's sword being sharpened in the background. He knows he's about to lose his life. He's about to lose his head. And where is Messiah in all of this? Are you, are you the coming one? Or shall we expect someone else? Don't you see? This, is, this has been a theme that has played out among God's people in all of their affliction and all of their trouble. And it doesn't matter where in history, and it can be national, it can be personal, whatever it is, struggle, pain, sorrow, where are you? Have you forsaken me? Have you forgotten me? Have you passed by me? Is my way hidden? Where are you? And so the Lord raises the question in our own text, well, why do you say, O Jacob, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? And the justice due me has escaped, has passed by the notice of my God. Some things to think about by way of application. I mentioned it earlier, mentioned it again. At least this, that if you are struggling with such doubt, such pain, you raise such questions, you're not alone. It it is a theme that has unfolded throughout the history of God's people. God's people have struggled with these issues again and again, generation by generation. You're not alone. And there's, there's some comfort in that. You're not isolated. You're not struggling. You shouldn't feel like that guilt or I'm questioning and now now I'm somehow apart from the communion of God's people and from his word and spirit because I'm struggling with these things. No, this is this is this has been the experience of God's people throughout history and the Lord knows that. You can take comfort in that. You're not alone. We all to one degree or another. We all whether minister, elder, deacon, congregant, longtime believer, immature believer, whatever, we've all struggled with this. To one degree or another, I recognize. And another thing is 
God knows. He, he overhears. He, he knows your thoughts. He knows what you're saying. It's rather interesting. I'll make this point again. He doesn't chide. It doesn't seem like he's going to come down with heavy judgment. It's not a heavy punishment. In fact, the whole text is, in the midst of my people's struggle, he'll ask, why? Why are you asserting this? But he will also say, comfort, bring comfort, comfort my people in their struggle, in their doubt, in their skepticism, in their affliction, in their sorrow, in their grief. Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. No chiding, no punishment, no judgment. He knows what you're going through. He overhears. And his response? He wants to draw near and comfort you. So that you feel, and not only know intellectually, doctrinally, which is important, but also that you feel that comfort, that warmth, relief, soothing. I know it's paradoxical because one moment we could be crying and struggling and doubtful, and then the next moment we're resting and we're feeling and we're knowing we're being uplifted and strengthened by our God in our faith, in his promises, by his spirit. Have you ever experienced that? You're not alone. With all the losses, I look at our congregation with all of the losses, struggles, afflictions. Brothers and sisters that were with us at one time and now are with the Lord. The other trials that we've had to endure, other afflictions, whatever they might be, the Lord knows. In his response, he wants to comfort. His mandate, his mission is to comfort you. And I have to say, and I'll come back to this again, consider Jesus. Son of God, the incarnation of God, the embodiment of God among us, all God, all man, two natures, one person. Think of Jesus coming among us, becoming like us very much, all human, all human except without sin, and, and then going to the cross. Remember the seven words, what were, what were one of the things that he uttered from the cross as he's dying, naked between heaven and earth, crucified, nails in the hands and the feet, beaten to a pulp, mocked and scorned, no comfort below. Doesn't seem like there's any comfort above. There's no comfort at all. And he cries out from the psalm, quoting, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus himself raises the question, why have you forsaken me? He knows and yet he has so entered into your pain, your affliction, your trial, your sorrow, even your sin and the misery and curse of that sin that he can cry out from the cross in that utter darkness and that pain and shame. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Don't you see how close he has identified with you? Talk about justice, we'll come back to this, I'll repeat it again, but talk about justice. Has the justice of our God escaped, passed by? You're seeing the very manifestation of his 
justice as well as its compassion and mercy upon the cross as Jesus identifies fully with your struggles by crying out in his death pangs, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Consider the depth of the justice. Consider the depth of the mercy. Consider the depth of the pain. Consider the depth of that question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? hard to move on from there. Hard to move on from there. He's held out to you this morning. Yes, resurrected at the right hand, all glorious. But that vision of the cross, he's held out to you this morning. He's held out to you this morning. Why would you reject such a Savior? Hard to move on. Has a second point. Maybe I'll be quick with this. People's complaint. God's response. Yes, his response is to comfort. But how is he going to do that from verses 12 to the end of the chapter? There's a promise there, the eagle's wings. A wonderful promise. We won't spend time with that. But he's going to respond. And he is responding to just that one that one assertion that the people make, he raises the question, why, Jacob, Israel, why are, you, why are you saying this? Why are you saying that your way is hidden from me and my justice has passed you by? Why are you saying that? And you see, the, the whole chapter is answering, is answering their quandary, their dilemma, their struggle, their skepticism. And he's going to answer by, yes, comforting, comfort my people also by his majesty, beginning in, in verse 12 to the end of the chapter, his majesty. You see, we, we don't have time, but, but if you consider the form of it, what, what you're going to see, verses 12 through 14, questions are going to be raised. It's rather interesting. He's going to, this is like filled with questions. It's almost like a question time, almost like a catechism, but not quite. Questions can be somewhat rhetorical. He's going to raise questions, and he's going to give an answer. It's interesting. He raises questions, and then he's going to give an answer. You see at verses 12 through 14, questions, 15 through 17, the answer. Verse 18, a question. Verses 19, 20, an answer. Verse 21, a question. Verses 22 through 24, an answer. Verse 25, a question. Verse 26, an answer. Verse 27, the big question, why? Why are you saying this? Why are you asserting this? And then uh, verse uh, 28, another question, and then the end of the chapter, or a tremendous promise. You see, there's this question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. What he's doing, what he's, he's arguing, he's making an argument. He's not chiding, he's not going to judge, he's not going to punish. He issues a mandate, comfort my people, and then he draws near, and he says, let's reason together. Even in your affliction, your pain, let's reason together. And so, for example, verses 12 through 14, the question, it sounds like Job, when God appears to Job. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who has done this? I'm the creator of all things. So, so you're, you're going to raise questions about my presence, about my, my sovereign power, about my dignity, about my, my, my 
love, covenant love for you, you're going to raise questions about that? Well, well, answer these questions then for me, will you? You're questioning me? I'm going to, I'm going to question you. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Hmm? And marked off the heavens by a span and calculated the dust of the earth by measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. Who, who has done this? If you're so smart and struggle with questions and doubts and question me and my, my presence and my justice, well, answer, answer the question. Then he's creation and then about his wisdom. Who, who's instructed the Lord? Who's counseled him? So the Lord is going to, he's, he's reasoning, he's reasoning with you. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Actually, it's taking the measure of the spirit of the Lord, literally. Who is taking the measure? It's so absurd. It's so ludicrous. It's a, it's a question. Well, who has taken the measure of the spirit of the Lord? Huh? And again, what he's doing is expanding their understanding of who he is, his majesty, his sovereign power, his dignity, his justice, his righteousness, his compassion and mercy. He wants to give them a big picture. He wants to overwhelm them with his, not only his majesty, but his magnitude. Infinite, eternal, God who loves you infinitely and eternally. He wants to give you the big picture. He wants to expand your mind, expand your heart. He wants to give you that fathomless ocean and ask you to dive into it and see if you can't reach the bottom. Oh, the tremendous attributes of our God, his sovereign majesty, power, glory, dignity, his love, his compassion and mercy. So comforting, so comforting. He wants you, he's going to reason with you. He's not going to chide, he's not going to punish, he's not going to judge, but he's going to reason with you. And who has done these things in relation to creation? And who has... Who has instructed me? Who's been my counselor? Who has shown me the way of justice and righteousness? You're raising that question about justice. Well, it's rather interesting. Later he'll raise a question and then he'll give the answer about the, the, uh, the rulers and the judges on earth, the nations. With whom did the Lord consult? Who gave him understanding? Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge? Who informed him of the way of understanding? No one. He's infinite, eternal, incomprehensible. He is the living and true God, separate from creation and the creator of all things. And then look at the answer he gives. So he, he raises these questions in 15 through 17. Behold, the nations are like a drug. Even the nations and all their power and glory, they haven't created anything. And though they may be terrorizing you and there might be other things that might be terrorizing you, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. He lifts up the islands like fine dust, even Lebanon. All the nations, listen, all the nations are like nothing before him. If there's any power that you think is going to harm you, it's like nothing compared to God. They are regarded by him, all the nations, with all of their power, with their majesty, like nothing. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Tohu. Reference back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. 
and the earth was formless and void and formless. This is the nations. It's like chaos. They're, they're nothing. Nothing compared to my majesty, says the Lord. It's, it's, it's just an example. We can't go through the whole text. It's rather interesting. He says, well, who has taught me justice and righteousness and this, that, and the other thing? Well, the nations are like nothing. And then he'll talk about the judges and the rulers of the earth. And they're like nothing. They're meaningless. You think the present administration has power? It doesn't. You think any future administration has power? You think any past administration has any majesty power? No. You think the United States is so powerful? Psh, it's like a speck of dust. You think all of the nations of the earth combined? Going back to Psalm 2, the rulers of the earth, it's like a speck of dust. Why are you afraid? Why are you anxious? Do you not know? Have you not heard that the Lord himself, creator of all things, righteous, good, loving, merciful, kind, comes to you this morning and says, oh, speak comfort to my people. Speak, speak to their heart. Speak kindly. It's really literally speak to their heart. Your sins are forgiven. Your warfare is over. And in spite of your sin, you'll receive double from my hand, double blessing. The eldest son in the inheritance, you will receive, all of you will receive double in spite of whatever you've done. Be comforted. Tired, weary. This thing about grief, and as you know, Hazel and I and our family have been stricken by grief recently over the course of the summer, the loss of our youngest, youngest son. One thing about grief is, is, you know, it wears you out. You cry, and then you're worn out. Have you ever experienced like that deep grief? And you're just exhausted. There's no more tears. You're, you're like dried out. And then all of a sudden it wells up again. You're ambushed by the grief, and you cry, and you sob. And then you're so tired, right? Tired. And that's why that promise is so beautiful at the end. You catch that? The Lord himself doesn't become weary. The Lord himself, he gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks, he gives increased power. Those who wait for the Lord will regain new strength. They will mount up with wings of eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. The point here is that he will so address your sorrow and the exhaustion, the, exha the fatigue within that sorrow, he'll so address it, he'll take away that very, that very point of sorrow and give you new strength. This is, this is comfort. He'll renew. He'll refresh. He'll soothe. He'll relieve He'll empower. He'll strengthen you. You'll mount up like the wings of eagles. I always think of the end of the, the story of the Lord of the Rings and Frodo and Sam. They're on, you know, there's lava everywhere. They're on the rock. They, they, they think they're going to, they know they're going to die. There's no way. There's no escape. And who comes? Do you remember? It's the eagles. The eagles come, and they mount up on the eagles, and they're safe. The Lord is 
bringing the eagles to you this morning. In our Savior Christ, no mounting up, no mounting up. Raised up with Jesus, no mounting up on the wings of the eagles.